The opioid epidemic has been called one of the biggest public health crises of our generation. But more than just that, it is personal. It hits home for many of us. It seems like we all know a family member, friend, or acquaintance who has been touched by this horrible crisis. Some of them are no longer with us because of it. Delaware has worked for years to address this major issue, from expanding treatment and access to overdose-reversing medicine naloxone, to cracking down on opioid manufacturers and pain pill prescriptions. Even so, one thing is for certain. The epidemic is still here. The health department estimates that there were nearly 150 suspected overdose deaths in Delaware this year alone, and the number continues to rise. We spoke to leaders on the front lines of addiction awareness and policy to get a sense of how far Delaware has come and what we must do going forward to truly fight this epidemic. It is difficult, sometimes heart-wrenching work, but it is necessary. Here's what they had to say. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. So I'm State Representative David Benz. I represent the 18th District in uh, Christiana, and uh, I serve as chair of the Health and Human Development Committee in the House. I'm also a member of the Behavioral Health Consortium, which works a lot with um, you know, developing new policies to address the opioid epidemic in our state. Hi, Bethany Hall Long, Lieutenant Governor. Really uh, excited to be here with uh, Representative Bentz and uh, also to have the opportunity to um, share on the broadcast, the podcast, Behavioral Health Initiatives are Encompassing Cradle to Grave, Autism to Alzheimer's. But today I know we're here to talk about the big A of addiction and opioids. So it's great to be here um, back in the House where it started for myself before becoming a senator and now as Lieutenant Governor. It's exciting to have this opportunity um, and to really watch the representatives here take leadership on this issue, and particularly Representative Benz. And I'm Dave Humes. I'm a board member of Attack Addiction. I also am a member of the Behavioral Health Consortium. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and I've also lost my son to an accidental heroin overdose back in 2012. And I, I would like to also say that yesterday was the fifth anniversary of the bill signing of Community Access to Naloxone, sponsored by then-Senator Bethany Hall Long. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> and I think, David, you had something to do with that with Representative Barbieri. Yeah, I think that was a Barbieri. Uh, he, he was the House sponsor. He was. One, he yeah. was. Yeah. Pretty cool. So I, I would initially describe it in sort of the simplest terms as the largest sort of public health crisis we have in our state and probably across the country as well. Um, you know, it's it's something that has really gotten to the point where just about every community is affected in some way. Um, you know, every neighborhood has somebody living there who's dealing with addiction. Every family has somebody who's dealing with addiction. Um, so it's touched just about every life at some point, whether it's directly or whether it's, you know, a passive way of a family member or a friend. So uh, that it described in that sort of broad terms. Now that's unfortunately where we are right now, where it's, it's that large of a scope of a problem and, and needs more attention. And uh, for, for myself as a, a nurse and uh, having been in the trenches in public health, it is truly at the crisis of our generation, as the representative just stated. And for the families and others who are listening, uh, you know, this goes twofold. This is uh, an issue from our young to our seniors. This is not just an issue for persons who are prescribed pain pills incorrectly, uh, but this also is about persons who are, have mental health challenges who also don't always get treatment and self-medicate. So it's a real 
it's a real crisis. And I know Governor Carney, when he pulled together our behavioral health consortium, really wanted us to have that thorough approach. And at the end of the day, I know when you hear David talk from the heart, you know, about uh, his Greg and the others that aren't here with us, it's 400 individuals last year. And that is 22 Every 22 hours, think about that. We lose a Delawarean right now to this crisis. And so that's why we've got all hands on deck addressing that because it's the loss of a loved one and its impact on our economy and our community. And so, uh, again, feel that feel the pain every day when I get phone calls. We, we all call it by similar names. I've been referring to it as the public health crisis of the 21st century. We've lost over 600,000 Americans in the 21st century. Uh, the numbers keep going up both nationally and within the state by double digits, and we, we have to really work at stopping those overdose deaths. I, I mentioned I lost my son Greg to an accidental heroin overdose um, seven years ago. Uh, my son Greg was was really a great kid, and what I've learned through this is typically we think of the people who are, are using heroin or opioids as somebody who's a risk taker. Uh, what we have found through our attack addiction group that many of these people who are either still in use or in recovery are really people, it's just the opposite, where they're people who are just sort of quiet, they're sort of sensitive, and they're looking for a way uh, to fit in. Um, my, my son was a really good kid, but we know that drugs take good people to bad places. And in my instance, it, it took my son to prison. Um, he uh, was released from prison. He violated his parole and he was taken back in. And he really got it at that point. And he said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in, in institutions, whether they're correctional or rehab. Um, so he was really doing quite well. Uh, he was working and um, he was moving forward with his life and reconnecting with some of his old friends. When he ran into some old running mates of his, and he went off with them and thought he could do this one more time. And we know over time, resistance to these drugs go down. And he was with these uh, his old running mates, and he overdosed. Um, when he overdosed, they put him in his car. They drove him to the parking lot of a hospital, and they simply walked away. They didn't hit the key fob to get the horn going on the car. They didn't run to the doors of the emergency room and hit the red button and run like crazy. And they didn't go a block away and punch in their uh, cell phone and say, go look in your parking lot. And by the time he was discovered, um, it, it was too late. So. And that story is so moving. I don't know if Representative Mintz, I know he was part of the uh, drafting of legislation that really brought Dave to us, um, whether it was the 911 Good Samaritan Bill and the Narcan Naloxone. It started for me when I was chairing the Health Committee in the Senate. Uh, began My phone began ringing more, and particularly as some of our health systems changed services, dropped care to some children and youth, we began to see a huge issue in our inmate population. And for me, it was the phone calls that never stopped, um, and they've continued to up uptick. And I watched a young neighbor. He's now 24 at the age of 15. He's been in 17 treatment facilities. My next door neighbor, good kid, started with a football injury, got on opioids, and the story continues. The other is my executive uh, research scientist, PhD scientist at UD, had a nephew in his 20s, uh, brought him one Sunday night to my house at midnight and said he's not high enough. They won't admit him. They won't take him for detox. Tragically, a year and a half later, she ended up getting his seven-month-old son because he was out of Pet Boys getting his oil change, thought he could go in the bathroom and shoot up one more time, and it was fentanyl. And so now here she is raising this child. So for me, the personal stories are every day, and I'm sure Representative Benz has the same scenario. And as uh, David Hume said, his passion 
um, has driven many of us in this building to make lots of laws to make lives better for people. So obviously, I don't have a story that's as sort of personal as the one Dave told. It's it's you know I have had family members affected by uh, drug and alcohol dependency and addiction. So um, so I have seen it, but obviously not on the personal level that that some other folks have. But you don't. I don't think you have to experience that personally, that closely to obviously empathize with the people when you have somebody who's telling you these deeply personal stories and um, you don't even have to have your own children, but I have my own children now and you hear a story and you see what is unfortunately a possibility and the directions lives can take. And in the positions that we have, whether it's the lieutenant governor or whether it's a state representative, you have, you feel compelled to do something to say, you know, how do we stop pain like this? How do we stop loss like this to the best that we can going forward? We're in a crisis mode now. Uh, this demands our attention. It's, we're a little late, unfortunately, getting here. It's been something that we've done really in the last five years or so, where there's really been a huge push for this. It's unfortunately reached crisis level before we were able to start prioritizing it. Um, but it's time now. It's time that we, it's all hands on deck to use a term that's been used here already. And it's these stories, these personal stories of loss that really remind us constantly, whether we've experienced it ourselves or not as policymakers, that our constituents are facing this, our state's facing this. Um, and we really have no choice but to act and to do something to sort of curb this, really this damage that's taking place every day. Policymakers are looking at examples set by other states to inform their work and ultimately looking for ways for Delaware to lead on these initiatives. So I, I think we've done a lot, and obviously it's, I, I say that as somebody who's been involved with a lot of it. I have had the opportunity to work with policymakers from other states and have discussions and attend conferences and things like that with policymakers from other states. And I hear what they're doing, and they're not n- nobody out there is really doing a whole lot that Delaware is not also doing. Um, so that in and of itself is kind of good news that we have a lot of good policies in place. It's also a little bit... Uh, it can be frustrating at times because you want to do more. You want to constantly say, like, you kind of hope somebody out there has found some sort of a golden ticket idea that is just going to really fix this problem. So now we're kind of in a stage where we obviously have to keep our eyes on the horizon as new policies come forward uh, to certainly keep a mind open to adopt, you know, the newest policies that are out there that have demonstrated some track record of success. But also we're in this point now where we just need to stay committed to the course that we've set for ourselves. And I do think we've adopted the policies necessary to hopefully see this problem plateau at some point and then hopefully start reducing. We continue to make sure that we have treatment options for people. We continue to make sure that we have life-saving drugs on the street, naloxone, Narcan, things like that to, to sort of stem the loss of life. But then also really step up, ratchet up our prevention efforts to make sure that this is something that doesn't continue to get worse, that we're not having uh, new people develop addictions to these things going forward. And we've done a lot there by sort of limiting access to uh, prescription opioids and gateways that that lead into more illicit substance addiction and things like that, the really dangerous ones that end up uh, taking lives. So I feel like we are on the cutting edge, so to speak. We have done what people have thought of so far. Now it's all about keeping our determination, keeping this a priority, making sure it's getting our resources and our efforts so that we continue to push 
and really grind through this and make sure that we're doing everything we can and stay just stay committed to the cause. You know, kudos to Representative Benson and to the other reps and senators on the education and the, uh, I say education as well as the health committee, as well as corrections. This is really all hands on deck. And, um, you know, to the, to the listeners, you know, I'm not going to certainly get into a dry policy forum or debate about what we've done in the Behavioral Health Consortium, but I would encourage them to know that we are really, as uh, Representative Benz has stated, really trying very hard to put Delaware ahead. And Delaware actually was the first state to implement the overdose system of care bill. We're one of the first states to address mental health parity. Thanks to Representative Benz and others' leadership, uh, both here in the House and the Senate. And because of those measures, all, all eyes are on Delaware. Uh, we were really honored this year. I know that uh, Dave here with us with the TAC Addiction and Representative Bentz were part of the initiative that enticed Pew Charitable Trust to come to Delaware. Uh, that was a very, very competitive process, and we were one of two states selected. And we've come out with an action plan to reduce mortality, knock on wood, our numbers this year so far have been trending down, but again, knocking on wood. Uh, and that also we were looking at access and insurance. So how do we train, change that and make more parity? And then how do we give people drugs, not tool, not cookie cutters, but the methods where some people might need medication-assisted treatment, some don't. How do we get the counseling and the prevention? Um, as David had indicated, and as um, you know, attack addiction will tell you, it's sustainability. It's a lifelong process of putting sustainability for uh, treatment in place. So again, lifelong sustainability recovery measures. We have a report, 117 action items. We have implemented 80% of them. So again, I'm not going to go into every single one, but know for uh, those who are out there listening, we have resources 24-7 now. DSAM has implemented Help Is Here Delaware, but it is beyond what it was before, beyond just addiction. It is mental health and mobile crises. And then we're working really hard to eliminate the stigma. Having these conversations, having this podcast is really important. Um, people who often self-medicate have an underlying mental health disorder, bipolar, schizophrenia, other mental illnesses. And so we want individuals to know they can get help 24-7. So again, um, we can get more information out later on the particulars should you should you need those. I'm glad you brought up stigma. I think that that's that's been one of our primary challenges getting over is that there's there's a mindset that has persisted, I think, for a long time. We're finally starting to get over that hump where this where addiction represented some sort of a massive character flaw, that this was just people who were flawed, who made bad decisions and ultimately kind of got the consequences of their decisions, basically. And that's been one of the largest things to overcome has been how do we change people's mindset from addressing this as maybe like a public safety issue, a criminal justice issue, to view it more as what it really is, as a public health crisis and something that, you know, locking these people up isn't obviously going to stop them from being addicts going forward. That's not going to cure the problem. So I think we've come a long way in that regard. I do see it. I've, I've seen it in just my time here, which is a lot shorter than the time you've been here. This, the, the reaction to this is being something where we need to be tough on crime. We need to have consequences and lock these people up to being, okay, we need to deliver treatment to these people has become sort of a bipartisan mindset change. And we have seen these, a lot of these efforts be met with bipartisan support because this affects, like I said, every community in the state. That's a real positive standpoint, but I also, it, it kind of makes you a little bit disappointed because that's, I think, what that sort of dated mindset of, you know, we need to punish this out of people is kind of what got us in the crisis mode. Um, it really took this kind of spreading beyond sort of niche communities, the addiction problem being one of uh, that affects minority populations or low income populations. It really unfortunately took it 
being a mainstream problem that affects all socioeconomic levels, all uh, different racial groups until it really started, started to click to people that, you know, this isn't something that is just limited to flawed individuals, that anybody can kind of unfortunately get caught up in this. So it's a positive thing that has led to us being able to identify this, uh, you know, as something that should not be stigmatized, and we want people to come out and, and admit that they need help when they do, um, you know, you know, and that I think represents sort of I say the biggest change that we've seen that has led to the ability to implement so many positive reforms here is that realization that you know we can't just punish this out of people that we really need to have some compassion for people who are dealing with this problem and make sure that they're getting the treatment and the care that they need. Very good it's, points. It's, and David, you should jump in. Yeah, this it's it's a human form. issue, really. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to make sure it's a human issue. And we have to make sure people understand it's a disease. It's treatable. It's chronic. You have to maintain, maintain your treatment. And, you know, I, I tell people, you know, go forward. But don't forget, every once in a while, look over your shoulder to see where you came from to make sure you can see where you're going and avoid those pitfalls. And when we we talk about what the General Assembly has done here uh, from 2013 to 2018, we've passed over 22 laws directly dealing with addiction issues from Good Samaritan to naloxone access to community to naloxone for police um, to parity issues uh, to get... uh, special uh, Senate concurrent resolutions so that high school nurses can carry naloxone in their schools, so that working with uh, the Department of State, we've, we now have regulations in place for prescribing, not guidelines. So we've done an awful lot in this state, and I think we've become, in many instances, an early adapter, and people are looking toward Delaware to look for solutions. I'm glad you say that, because all eyes are on Delaware. I say that to the, to the governor because of the initiatives that are crossing the silos, And that's one of the things that has been the biggest challenge was how do you break down the barriers between corrections, education, health and social services, do the prevention, get the treatment while breaking down the stigma. And so, um, you know, it's a kudos to uh, the bipartisan efforts here in the legislature and to the previous administration um, and to others and to the attorney general's office and across uh, jurisdictions where, you know, again, it's all hands on deck. And I also have to say, uh, less than a week and a half ago, Governor Carney signed into law SB 34, which was the opioid impact fee bill, which I know Representative Benz worked very hard on and was a sponsor in the House of. We were the first in the nation to pass this bill that puts a very small fee on opioids and puts it into a a separate fund to go to addiction. We have to make sure it goes into the trenches, not to data collection, not to studies. There are plenty of those out there. Uh, but again, we were the first in the nation to do this, and uh, hopefully the opioid manufacturers will look at that and say, you know what, we need to sit down with some of these attorney generals and we need to settle this thing more quickly. Change doesn't happen overnight, and these leaders are constantly looking to those in communities for how these policies are actually working. So the, the best way, the thing I look for, the information I look for is people on the ground is, you know, what are you hearing from people who are treatment counselors, things like that? What do you hear about from people who have a family member who needs access to, to treatment? Are they, are we doing everything we can to break down barriers so that they're able to get the help that they need? That's what we ultimately look for. I mean, there's, there's measurables out there and we're going to have to obviously keep an eye on those things, the data to, to what Dave said, you know, we do need to keep an eye on these things to see if the situation's improving or not from a, you know, a data standpoint. But it's, I, I like to hear, is this reform that we've done, 
is it achieving what we set out when we proposed it? Is it breaking down a barrier that you see to care? So when we do something like an opioid impact fee is, you know, you talk to the Department of Health because they're the ones who are going to be administering the, the fee and, and putting out the dollars that we raise from it. Are they seeing it get to where it needs to go to? Um, you want to hear from them directly. You want to hear from uh, the providers and, and things like that, that they are seeing people that there's less hoops between that a person has to jump through between, you know, having an overdose situation unfold to getting into care. And that's what we try to do with some of our other things that are, uh, the system of care bell. You know, how are we breaking down these barriers? How are we making this as easy as possible for somebody who is in crisis to get the help that they need? And there's not a they're not dealing with insurance companies. They're not dealing with a lack of beds. They're not dealing with all these other things that can, you know, trip them up in their efforts to get the care that they need. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear from these people on the ground who are going to come back and say, this is working much better than it was years ago. So that's really where I look, because they're the ones who are going to know first. They're going to know the details as to where things are working and where they're not. And that's really where we need to look as policymakers and say, tell us what we need to do differently. Tell us what we are doing that's working so we can expand on it and do more of it. Which I love to hear because I always like to tell people I love to steal quotes. And a great quote is, nothing about us without us, meaning don't tell people what they need. Ask them what they need. Uh, but when we look at these policies, too, we, we have to take into, into consideration that they're brand new policies. And in many instances, we can't measure them the next day. It's going to take some time uh, when we look at these policies to measure their effect. I think if you look at our report, and thank you so much to Representatives and Dave, what you're saying here, it is really about uh, looking what happens in the trenches and the, the stories that come back are very important. But I can reassure you, this is such a high priority um, you know, of the administration. We have a weekly call. And every week, I can tell you precisely how many individuals have passed away from opioid deaths, where they're located. We trend out in the community, uh, going out with our mobile units. We follow up. DSAM, which is Department of Substance Abuse Mental Health, Division of Public Health, uh, as well as Homeland Security, our Office of First Management and Planning, all of them, are, we're very closely looking at the outcomes. And if you were to visit um, our report at some point in time, you'll see that our goal is really, they're made very measurable, like saying, are the people getting in treatment? So there is this 24-hour-7 hotline now. People can tell, providers can tell where bids are available. When somebody calls, they should not be denied a service. I want to make that really clear. When you call Help Is Here Delaware, our mobile crisis, you should be able to get help. And we're really monitoring closely our emergency departments as well as our Department of Corrections. We're going to be implementing some major changes there to ensure when people leave incarceration. And the final thing I'll say that both Dave, uh, Dave with Attack Addiction and Representative Ben stated um, is breaking down that stigma, the misunderstanding. It is very expensive for an individual who has brain hypoxia to live in a nursing home. And that's where people end up when they have an overdose and they are revived. A lot of them cannot fully function. So for taxpayers, when I often hear them say, well, why are we spending money here? We're spending money because one, it's someone's child. Two, it is someone's parent. Three, they contribute to our economy. No one asks for this. And it is truly a brain health disease. This is a disease just like cancer or diabetes. And so I think as we had these conversations, people should not be embarrassed. So for anyone listening to your podcast, I really hope they're not shy. They should pick up the phone. They can get very um, confident 
confidential referral, confidential treatment. Nobody has to know they called. Um, and employers were working really hard with employers too to let them see the benefits of having employer assistance plans in place because it will improve worksite productivity. And I, I think I, I kind of talked about this, but what I saw is that the major roadblock was getting people to sympathize with people who are afflicted with addiction. And again, not see them as people who kind of deserve what they got. Um, you know, how do you get people over that mindset? And as, as elected officials, we have to deal with that. We have to say, we've put more of your tax dollars into fighting this problem and had to go back and we have to tell our constituents why we think that that's important. Um, and if their mindset is one of, well, you're just helping people who are just flawed internally, that's a hard sell. So that's why when I say it's unfortunate that it took this becoming such a massive problem to the point where it hit impacted so many lives, so many lives across socioeconomic spectrum that everybody did start to realize, okay, this isn't just something that happens to that person over there who is a flawed individual. This can happen in my family, to people I know, to friends of mine. And once that happens, once people realize that it is something that can happen to them, it can happen to their kids, it can happen to their brother or sister or their, their friends, then it becomes something that for us to say, okay, we, we want to go and we want to put more of your tax dollars into fighting this problem, it becomes an easier sell for us. Uh, it's that tipping point of the mindset where one is, again, like we were at a time where it was just say no. If you are caught with drugs, we're going to put you in jail. And understanding that after decades of trying that, that it wasn't working, that the problem was only getting worse, we were able to, you know, it took, unfortunately, this reaching crisis point, but we were able to finally sell to people that, hey, you know, this isn't a case where we can just punish this out of people. We can punish addiction away by putting people in prison, that this is going to take a science-based, a, a medicine-based approach to this and, and how we're going to treat people who are suffering with addiction. That's been the most critical point that's happened in, in really just the last couple of years where, like I said, it went from, I think at first it was, you know, it was a, a partisan divide on it. First, it was it was almost universal. Okay, we just need to lock people up who, who have addiction. Then it became like a partisan thing. And now we're at the point where fortunately, it seems like everybody's kind of on board, which is what we've been trying the last couple of decades is not working. And we need to maybe try this new way of a science-based approach where we're going to treat people who are dealing with a disease as it's been called, because that's what it is. Um, you know, and, and that has helped us get the resources necessary to really address the problem. And we're hearing it from the northern part of the state all the way down to, to rural southern parts of the state, people demanding some sort of action from the state to do something about this because they have loved ones or friends who are suffering. And, and you know, if we're not doing our best to fight this problem, we're failing as legislators, we're failing as policymakers. And the deaths, you know, the death rates have continued. And I think the uptick, too, was, as you stated, around five years ago when we flipped and, you know, became one of the leading causes of death for the state um, across every zip code, every zip code in the state. And uh, law enforcement, too, began to see it. It was taking a tremendous amount of time for law enforcement because you're dealing with petty theft, shoplifting to support a habit. Um, it affects all. And so we've seen a lot of what we call drug diversion programs in the county. It's called Hero Help. There are angel programs at the local municipality. State police are now looking at working through the attorney general's office because, again, we now have more people dying from overdose than car crashes um, and than anything else. And I think, you know, Dave Humes has said it straight up in the very beginning. This is the public health crisis, the epidemic of our generation. 
Yeah, one of the other things that I see as a, a turning point, what well, didn't happen here in Delaware, but happened nationally with the death of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I believe it was 2015, and that was one of the first times that I could recall hearing of a celebrity death uh, from an overdose, and it was treated uh, in the media with kindness rather than looking at somebody this rich, famous, junkie type of thing. And Philip Seymour Hoffman had been in recovery for 20 years and uh, before he had his relapse and died. And, and I, I think that was a, a turning point uh, to bring attention to it. Opioid addiction has existed for hundreds of years, but recently became much more deadly due to the introduction of synthetic opiates like fentanyl. I, I have a uh, face that's made for podcast, but what you can't see is I'm holding a sugar packet in my hand. Uh, you can get it off of uh, any coffee shop, any restaurant. The sugar packet contains three grams of sugar, and we can convert that to three, 300 milligrams of sugar. Three milligrams of fentanyl can kill a human being. So the amount of fentanyl equal to a pack of sugar can kill 100 human beings. If we had a shoebox full of fentanyl, it could kill all of Delaware. So it's easy to ship it into this country. A lot of the smaller shipments come in in shoeboxes through Canada and then mailed to the United States. The larger ones come in through Mexico, where it does get mixed, whether it's with cocaine or other drugs. So this is the, the type of impact that uh, fentanyl has had. It's, it's just so dangerous because so little is needed. Uh, the dealers can buy fentanyl for, from China for about $300, uh, $3,000 for a shoebox full, and they can make $1.5 million by selling it on the streets. So it's, it has a severe impact. We need to try and do more to shut it down uh, with our, our federal government, shut it down in China. And the fentanyl is my effort. And what that means is 72% of our 400 deaths last year were caused from fentanyl. It is not currently, although we're changing some of our laws and some of our testing, it is not part of the routine drug panel. And so that poses a real issue in our emergency departments and other places. I know that thanks to the leadership of Elizabeth Romero and others at DSAM, we've been piloting those in different places and looking at our programs. But it is serious, as Dave um, had indicated, you know, in fentanyl, you don't know you're buying it. And they are starting to put it in street cocaine and other illegal drugs. And so that is the scary worry worrisome part. Uh, the good news is, uh, you know, we're getting out and we're getting more education and we're getting Narcan in the hands of everyone that we possibly can that we know are using. Um, and as David knows, we did a great job years ago. Uh, and as Representative Benz knows and doing our prescription monitoring program in the state. And when we did that, getting rid of Percocets and oxycodone, we put it to the street a little bit because it's cheaper to buy a bag of heroin. And then they can easily lace the heroin with fentanyl and we have no idea. So it is a very serious issue. The fentanyl is very serious. So that's fentanyl is what's killing people ultimately. I mean, 72%, that's what it's either people who don't realize it's in, they, they, you know, they think they're buying heroin or something else and there's fentanyl in it. The perspective that Dave that you gave to this by saying you know what's in a sugar packet and how many that people that can kill just in a sugar packet uh, a shoebox full and the damage that that can do and if you put it into that perspective you realize how again how easy that is to get into the state to move around it, it really puts into perspective the the stature of our enemy here of the opponent of, of of the evil that we're facing that is claiming lives and sort of how powerful it is and just how formidable 
this opponent is, this enemy is, and, and why it's going to take just a relentless offensive by us as policymakers to, to really be able to combat this on equal footing. I mean, this, this is one that, you know, does have a, a, a real law enforcement component to it because we need to make sure that, and again, this is kind of, we obviously have state police who can crack down on this, county police who can crack down on this and, and, and make sure that it is a priority of theirs. It, it, the addiction epidemic drives a lot of their work. If you talk to them, they'll say, you know, the addiction epidemic fuels a lot of the crime all the way from, from you know, petty car thefts and breaking it all the way up to homicides and things like that, that a lot of this is driven by uh, the addiction epidemic. But there's obviously a law enforcement component to this that needs to really be a national effort uh, you know, if we're really going to limit how this comes in, because most of it does come in from other countries, it's being brought in. People can order it online. I think you can, you can unfortunately order this or synthetic fentanyls too, and, and rep, replicas of, of fentanyl. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not all that difficult to get your hands on, especially if you're, um, this is something that you do if you're, uh, you know, a, a drug dealer of, of some sort. I mean, you know how to get your hands on this sort of stuff. So it prevents a serious. It presents a serious sort of law enforcement challenge that we're going to have to do to make sure that the people who are bringing this in. Um, I mean, these aren't necessarily the, the people we need to be sympathetic for, right? These aren't the people suffering with addiction. These are people who are causing addiction, who are inflicting damage on our communities. This is where, if we're going to have a law enforcement component of this, which it, it has to be there. I'm not saying you know. Nobody should get locked up in all of this, but we need to make sure that we're targeting these people and we're aggressively targeting these people who are bringing these in and who are unleashing this this damage onto our communities. We, you know, we stay away from um, national issues or working with Congress or whatever. But so I, I don't know the the nuts and bolts details of it. But the the federal government did institute some some laws or regulations so that if they were shipping something out of China, they have to give things like street addresses and whatnot. To, whether it's the U.S. Postal Service or FedEx or um, United Parcel or any of these delivery people. So they're trying to do it, and that's part of the reason why they're shipping it into Canada because they don't have to do it there. So it's going to take um, diplomacy on the international level to work with China to get them to stop it in its tracks because that's where most of it's coming from. And with fentanyl, there are things that we are doing for the, those who are listening. Um, if you have a loved one that you're concerned about, uh, if you were to contact, you know, Help Us Here and other programs, um, I know that Brandywine Counseling, for example, offers the needle exchange program, um, and they have the ability to provide to certain individuals actual fentanyl testing strips. There's a special program. They've gotten a QI permit from our Department of Substance Abuse from, but it's going to take, as Representative Benton stated, the whole big picture with law enforcement, then you've got the federal diplomacy, the federal issue, and then you have certainly here at the state level, we're going to be working really hard, um, you know, at the state level to make sure that as we can change laws, working with the attorney general's office and others to screen for fentanyl when we can, and perhaps in our emergency departments and other places, we'll be able to, you know, to do that. Because again, we need to really have the prevention. And so hopefully as we're getting the prevention and the word out there too, um, you know, it will just take time. There is no quick fix. There is no quick fix to this issue. Yeah, and, and we have to attack this from the supply and the demand side and the law enforcement side really 
is what we look at to try to do to attack the supply side of this and how do we prevent fentanyl from getting in the streets in the first place. But the, the easiest thing, or, or not the easiest thing, but I, I guess the most, where we're seeing a lot of our efforts and where I think we're going to long-term have a real impact, because again, if we're talking about something that can be moved around in, in a shoebox, in a sugar packet, it's really hard to stop the, the, the supply of something like that. We can work on the demand side by having prevention efforts in place to, to make sure that you know people don't use fentanyl the first time they use. They start with a prescription opioid. They start with some some lower grade painkiller that they form an addiction to. And then when that supply is cut off, either because a prescription expires or something else, then they turn to an illicit substance to fill that need. And that's where they get access to fentanyl. So if we cut this off on the ground level by preventing the addiction from forming in the first place, that's really how we stop fentanyl from continuing to sort of take lives and and really... continuing to unleash the damage that it has been. And, we, you know, we can start this prevention as, as early as late elementary schools within our public school system to, to cut down on that demand. Absolutely. I know we've been looking at the Behavioral Health Consortium. We have great leaders in our community, too many to mention here. Um, but as you all know, sitting here with Dave, he's just one of uh, some dynamo individuals who are looking at that whole approach, cradle to grave and education prevention. Um, it's just, it's amazing how many people are um, really wanting to help with this initiative. And, and while we're on that subject, I mean, I want to, one of the things I've noticed, again, how do we, how have we been able to get things done? How have we been able to kind of be on the forefront of this nationwide. And what I've seen is just a relentless community ad- advocacy. I mean, we, David, we talked about the opioid impact fee that we passed. I know that that is not, this didn't just get proposed this year. Let's just put it that way. Um, I know I've seen that sort of being simmering, being an idea that you've been pushing for years and years. And it's, it, unfortunately, it takes sometimes several years for an idea to form and figuring out how to implement it in a policy standpoint. You know, we had to let legal cases play out in other in New York to figure out how are we going to word this correctly. There needs to be a relentless sort of community drive too. And that's Delaware has been sort of blessed to have that, I think, from people like yourself and, and the other families who have just continued to push us to make sure that, hey, maybe an opioid impact fee didn't happen last year. We tried it last year and it didn't happen. But, you know, I'm going to be back asking again next year. And it was that sort of just continued drive is like, you're not going to let us forget that this other options out there, that this other idea is out there. And that certainly helps us get it done and sell it to our colleagues, to people who hear, who share your, your passion for doing something about this to then sell it to our colleagues. It's interesting. Uh, former secretary of uh, health and social services, Rita Landgraf used to say, when you, you read these articles um, digitally, uh, don't look at the comments. That's her. That was, we called it Rita's rule one. Don't look at the comments and Rita's rule two was, don't respond if you violate rule one. I have been doing some work on uh, 911 Good Samaritan Law, and uh, I, I violated Reader's Rule 1, and I, I read the comments, and the comments said the guy was just a lousy father. His kid was going to die anyhow. So uh, I decided, why, why not violate Rule 2? And my violation of Rule 2, I responded to that person. I said, I hope you keep saying things like that because that will mean you haven't been touched. So I, I think when we, we look at this, um, I, I don't think people are going to be anesthetized to it because if you have six steps of Kevin Bacon here in Delaware, we have two. Everybody knows somebody and when it humanizes it, and that's why I don't think people are going to become desensitized to it until we see these deaths stop. You know, it's in, it's a really... Um 
important issue. And I, I can't thank you enough because the more we talk about this, I think it is more humanized and individuals realize that it is truly a brain health disease called behavioral health. And that a lot of this is uh, symptoms that individuals can actually see in their children. So I think anyone can be affected, no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your zip code. And um, it is not always injury, although we do spend a lot of time working with construction employers and others, educating them about the safety of this. It is early education. I know as Representative Bents and other representatives are working on issues of trauma and corrections and keeping our children out of the prison system, I think that we will not have a desensitization because there are so many issues. And I have to give such a shout out again to the leadership and to others here in the House and the Senate who are really making sure that uh, individuals see this not just as a a of addiction, but this is an epidemic, and this crosses corrections, education, healthcare, and it, and I do not see it. As I'm out on the street, I actually see more people searching for us. When I go walking down the street and we have Narcan, we're on our van, people come to us, um, and we, we can distribute over 100 doses in less than an hour. It's in demand. It is a real crisis. As long as we continue to make sure people truly understand the human toll of this crisis, and the way we do that is by making sure they see the faces of the people who have been suffering that, uh, you know, we have advocates who are out there telling their family members stories, their loved ones stories about how this happened. We have uh, people who are been willing to a number of very powerful articles written in in local news and state news about the, the toll of this, the actual human toll of this problem and people who are willing to share their stories and say, you know, this was my child. This was my brother, my sister, my mother, my father. If we continue to make sure that people understand the humanity of the people who who have lost their lives to this, that I think will prevent people from becoming desensitized to it. So we need to make sure we continue to have that be how we lead the pitch, if you will, to people that this continues to need our attention is is to put the human faces forward and say, you know, that people are losing their lives to this. Good people are losing their lives to this. Uh, people in your community are losing their lives to this. People you know, whether you know them now, whether you'll meet them later on in your life. If your family hasn't been touched by this, it unfortunately maybe will sometime in the future. So just continue to put it into very real terms, very human terms that it's unfolding and, and we'll be able to keep people motivated to, to continue to act. When we did the plan, this was not a bureaucratic plan. This was not a legislator plan. This was the people's plan. And so we had standing room only at some place. We didn't have enough room um, when we went out into the community. So we had over 600 individuals over four nights to help write up 1,100 ideas of which we prioritized 110 of them. So again, um, amazingly, I have not seen anyone becoming desensitized yet. I hope it doesn't happen. I would just like to mention again that uh, all all listeners should know that they can turn to, you know, help us here in Delaware. Um, we'll be sharing with you the phone numbers for a mobile crisis. And we also have a family support line, a new line that's been made available. And uh, hopefully in the near future, we're also going to have a line that's accessible for those who are homeless with mental health issues. So uh, again, we want people to seek out help. Um, and get help when they can. And again, we have all kinds of resources. No one should be getting denied. No one should be getting denied. Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash DEHouseDems, on Twitter at DEHouseDems, and on Instagram, also at DEHouseDems. 
More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed.